I am feeling great. It's so awesome that I get to be with you and share uh, from God's Word this morning. But I had some of the most amazing experiences yesterday, and I can't wait to share them with anyone. Um, I was on two flights yesterday, and on both of them, I had the row to myself. This was glorious. I can't believe it happened. Surely God's favor is upon me or something. Uh, But the best part of the day wasn't even that. As great as that was, I was at the birthday party for a 90-year-old gentleman. It was my grandfather's birthday, and uh, it was it was special. It was really a privilege to be there and uh, and say a lot of things that you don't always make the time to say to people when they're living. And so, it was really good. Uh, it was not. The, I'm sure some of you have been to birthday parties like that before. I hope you have. You've been to places where uh, and and celebrations where you gather around people, loved ones, and you hold them close and you let them know that they are loved and that they are special. There's a lot of different parties we go to in our culture, Uh, all sorts of them. A lot on my mind this week has been uh, where Sheena and I were 17 years ago, because back then we were preparing for our wedding. Now, when you plan a party, as you know, you've got to form a guest list. And I don't know how you go about selecting the people. Sometimes venue sets that. Yesterday, the venue was a small backyard. So there was a limit to how many people we could host. Um, Sometimes the limit is actually your own list of contacts. You're like, I only know these people. That's who I'm going to have, and that's great. There's no right or wrong answer to it. When Sheena and I were planning for our wedding, though, and some of you might have heard this story, um, we we had a little bit of a, a, a challenge. The challenge was nothing was saying no to us in terms of who we could invite. And if you know my wife, you know that she always, whenever she does something, she wants everyone possibly who could possibly be invited to be invited. She wants all to know they are welcome and loved and doesn't want anyone to miss out. And I'm like, yeah, cool, whatever, sounds fun. I'm just going to show up anyways. And so we we set our uh, guest list by not setting a guest list. We called uh, everyone we knew and we said, come to our wedding, come to the party. The only thing that limited us was the amount of stamps we wanted to send out because we're like, those aren't, those aren't cheap. So we put up posters. We did it old school. We went to like the church that we were a part of currently and we put up posters and we put it in the bulletin and we emailed the whole congregation. And we did a similar thing at the church that she grew up in and the church that she was part of when she was living in the north. And we did that at my place of work, which was the post office in Nanaimo. And we did that at her place of work, which was the hospital. And we did that at the hospital she used to work at. And so we had from far and wide, all over Western Canada, a huge contingent of people gathering. And the really special thing about it was this. Because I love Jesus and Sheena loves Jesus, he was at the center. And so we had hundreds of people at this wedding. And as sometimes though I was a little nervous going, okay, what's going to go wrong? Like whenever you bring all these people together, something's going to happen. Nothing happened. I mean, yeah, there was little things, but nothing really spoiled the party. It was a beautiful day where we actually were church with people who never go to church. And we praised God and he was honored in this crowd of people And it was a beautiful thing. It was a wonderful, wonderful day. Because he was, Jesus was made a focus. So, 
Again, I want to be clear about some of you, maybe you're in a season of life where you know people who are planning weddings. I, as I look out around the room, I don't think any of you are that I know of, but you know, let me know if you are. Uh, I'd love to celebrate that with you. Um, but I want to be clear. This is not any, this is descriptive. This is what we did. Please don't hear me to say that because a preacher is telling you this, that that's what you have to do. I'm not about to turn to some obscure verse of the Bible and say this is what you have to do and the way to do it. This is just what we did. And it was really wonderful. I am, however, going to turn in a few minutes to a very well-known passage of the Bible where something very similar happened. And I won't tell you that's the way you have to do every party, but it's, it's an interesting descriptive of how life sometimes is when we get everybody together and we put Jesus at the center. See, early in Jesus' days of ministry, he was centered primarily in the town of Capernaum. It was in northern Galilee. It was uh, a place where he spent lots of time. In fact, some of his uh, disciples, names you would recognize, right? Peter and James and John, they grew up in a little village nearby. And Capernaum was a hub of activity for fishing. It was a big trade center in that regard. Lots of fishing activity. And as a result of all of that trade, and as a result of Capernaum being at a little bit of a crossroads and a port of entry to some territories, it was a key point for the Romans to set up tax collection. You see, in Israel's, in this time, in the first century, Israel was not a free country. They were an occupied country. And so the Romans, who were in charge, wanted their peace. So they set up their tax collection at various key points, and Capernaum was one of them. So they set up a tax man, and it was his job to represent the man. His job to take taxes. His job to fund Rome. Now, depending on your background, you'd have different views of this. If you were pro-Roman, you would say, well, these funds go to support the peace of the empire. We enjoy the peace, therefore we need to pay it. But from the Jewish perspective, the monies were actually used as a form of oppression. They, and anyone, therefore, who collected them, they were a traitor and they were a sinner. They were increasing Israel's troubles and hardships. And so as Jesus' followers and as the crowds that started to follow him, you see, as Jesus went around town, he, he was gaining a reputation. He was performing miracles. He was healing people. He had healed lepers and he had healed crippled people. And, and he even started doing this little thing where he would tell people their sins were forgiven. And so lots of talk was growing about him. They had gathered to hear his teaching and they were curious. And so anywhere he went, people were following and a crowd was amassing. And no doubt one day people saw Jesus approaching the tax collector's booth. We don't know how often he would do this. As a, as a citizen, he paid taxes from time to time. And so they watch as he walked forward, is speculating, is he going to pay his taxes again? Well, he just paid his taxes. What's he doing? Is some who were looking forward to the Romans being removed from Israel would wonder, is he going to pick a fight? Is this the guy who's going to cause a stir and a ruckus and have Rome and kick Rome out? But he walked to the booth, and what he did instead shocked everyone because he doesn't pay his tax. He didn't start a fight. He looked at the tax man in the eye and said, follow me. Now, different accounts of the story record what happens next a little bit differently. 
when the guy who was that former tax man tells the story, he gets right to the chase and tells what happened next. Luke adds a little detail. Luke says that the tax man left everything and followed him. Everything. Yeah, he left his security. He left his employment. He left all of his, he left his lifestyle, his comfy lifestyle, because a lot of tax collectors were getting pretty rich from the monies they would hold back, charging over taxes so that they could get paid. So he left all of that, his place of security, his, his retirement, his everything, his only friends, because nobody else would associate with him but other tax people. He left all of that, but not quite yet. He didn't give up his list of contacts just yet, but he followed along. The scriptures go on, and in the gospel story, this tax man, former tax man, decides to throw a party. And it's not quite like a lot of the parties we've had today that it would resemble it in some ways. It was part going away, but it was also in the tradition of a lot of parties that they would have in those days, where you might invite an honored guest, a teacher, someone with some renown, to come to your house and present their ideas. And you would invite everyone you could think of to come and listen, and you would have a dinner party where the one you've invited, this honored guest, this teacher of renown, would then share their insight and their wisdom. And so there was this twofold party that is sprung up in a moment. And because this man, this man Matthew, only knew other tax collectors, that's who he invited. He invited them all and they came. Some, no doubt, because they just were trying to figure out how do we get his job, right? He's just abandoned his booth. How can I get a piece of that? I want that money. Some, because they've heard about this Jesus, and they heard what he's doing, and they wonder, if I go, and he's started to heal people, maybe he could heal me. Or some who are like, I don't have anything wrong with me, but I need forgiveness. I wonder, could he forgive me? He's offered that to others. Could I get in on that? And so they come with all sorts of reasons and they pack the house out. And very quickly it became a who's who of Galilee's most wanted white collar crime edition, which is a mouthful I know of a Law and Order spinoff. Right? They pack the house out. These are not your reputable citizens, but in the center of it all was Jesus. A few people who knew him, many more who didn't, but all who by the end of that day were going to know him and he's in the center. Now, as often happens with parties, uh, sometimes you have uninvited guests show up, and that was certainly the case here. Some came along, and they wanted to be the spoilers. They were there intent on being party poopers. So they look at what's going on, and they begin pronouncing judgment. They see the who is there, and they see this teacher, and they go, he isn't reputable. Look at who he's hanging out with. Because in that day, guilty by association was something serious. And so by sharing a meal, by being in the same room, by shaking hands with, sin was transferable person to person. And they saw that Jesus was getting sin all over him. And they were upset with it. He cannot be a teacher worth listening to if he's going to hang out with those people. The gospel writers can't even bring themselves to name all of the transgressions of them. They simply call them sinners. Interestingly enough, in one translation, it uses the word scum. 
That's how strong of a vile nature that people of the day viewed those who had gathered to share a meal with Jesus. And so they call this out, and they can't get close enough to, the, to Jesus. They can't get close enough to the action, so they pull away his disciples, people they likely knew. Again, they grew up nearby there, and they say, what's going on? How can you follow this guy? How can you sit at his feet and listen to his teaching when he hangs out with those people? We all probably have a picture in our head what those people look like. But the disciples don't answer him. Jesus does. He's aware of this. He answers them. And in Matthew's account, because Matthew's readers knew the Old Testament and knew the scriptures, Matthew goes to the prophets. He brings up Hosea 6. And he says, what does it mean when God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice? And he shuts them down with that. And in Luke's, it just moves on. Jesus shuts them down and goes back to the party. But that doesn't resolve the issue. No, no, no. These teachers of the law have another objection. In Luke, what they do, in Luke's version, they come to the disciples again and like, hey, what about this? Uh, how come you guys don't fast? This is an important aspect of our law. What's the deal? But Jesus answers them again. It's not the season for fasting. No, it's a season of celebration. It's a season like a wedding. We should be feasting and we should be celebrating. And what I want us to consider this morning is why does Jesus not see things the same way as these other teachers? Why is he the only teacher who, under, who, who sees the law differently? And in short, what we're going to explore is that Jesus knew a whole lot more than them. He knew the law better. He, 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 knew, a, he knew a higher, fuller, richer love, which allowed him to love people unconditionally. And he also knew what season it was. He knew those three things. And so he knew the law better. Because all of these objections that the law, teachers of the law brought were legal ones. These were legal challenges. Uh, next week when you come, our drama's all about a courtroom. It's a common theme throughout scriptures. Legal wrestlings. What does the law say? How do we interpret it? How do we live it out? So they bring legal objections. And to understand them clearly, let's read uh, what Luke records in Luke chapter 5. And we're going to see exactly what this says here and understand these legal arguments. So I'm going to read for us, beginning in verse 27. It says this, after this, uh, just a little heads up. The after this is what we're going to be covering next week when you come and see the production from Drama Camp. But after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Now I know a moment ago I called him Matthew, and uh, that's because often in that culture and society people had two names. And so some would call him Matthew, some would call him Levi, depending on uh, the perspective and all of that. Uh, so let's not be confused. It, it is the same person. So then Levi got, so Levi held a great, sorry, let me back up. Uh, follow me, Jesus said to him, verse 28, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. 
But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And in those days, they will fast. Okay, let's get into those legal objections. What is the trouble here? First, comes right down to who Jesus called. Matthew is not a suitable disciple because he's a sinner. He cannot follow God's law. He has chosen something else. He cannot be included. That's the first real objection here. Because of the, in part because of the functional hardship he's been levying on his own people. He's a traitor. He doesn't follow God's ways. He should have been rejected. But Jesus chose him. Went out of his way to choose him. Now, second objection. Jesus is hanging out with these sinners, therefore approving of their sin. From the view of the day, if you spent time with sinners you, and you didn't speak up, if you don't say something and condemn it, you are guilty of it. So he's equally guilty of their sins the people he associated with were committing. Third objection. He brings his disciples into this guilt. Now he's growing the expanse of guilty people. He brings his followers, the people he should be training in righteousness, the people he should be teaching the ways of God, he brings them into this sin. So it's growing. And fourthly, the view of the day was that for Israel to return to a place of peace, of prosperity, of prominence, that they needed, that in order for God to turn his favor upon Israel, they would need to reduce the sin. As people, they needed to become righteous and return to God. But what we have here is a religious teacher leading them in the opposite direction of where they should go. So in fact, it's not just Jesus becoming guilty, and it's not just he expanding that to his own disciples. He's actually making things worse for all of Israel because they need less sin in the country, not more. But, so those are the objections against Jesus. Those fourfold objections. Here's the thing. Jesus knew a lot about the law they didn't. In fact, as God, he wrote it. Imagine the irony of that. People who have studied God's law came to God and said, ah, we know this better than you. But they didn't know. They were ignorant of who Jesus really was. So he knew the purpose behind it the true intent of it, right? He knew exactly what God intended by writing the law. Paul points us to this in Romans 7, where he comments that, you know what, the, the law helped him, Paul, understand really what sin was. It helped him understand how far he was from God. That as much as he wanted to come near to God, he, he understood why he couldn't because of the law. So it does serve an important place of pointing out our need for God and how pointless our own efforts are to get us there. It points out what's keeping us from God and what's binding and restricting us. So Jesus knew that that was the intent of the law. 
Jesus also knew the spirit of the law. He knew what God wanted and hoped for the outcome, which is not greater distance, but a way to come near, a solution to that sin problem that the law points out. So as I mentioned already, in Matthew's version, Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6, which says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. See, the law said you need to, if you're wrong, you got to burn stuff, and then you'll get right. And God's now here is Jesus saying, actually, the point of the law is that God's looking for mercy. God wants to offer us mercy. God wants people to come acknowledging our need for him. And Jesus is there to meet us in that need. Paul also saw fulfillment of the law as he went on in Romans, Romans, eventually in Romans 13, he pointed out a truer way of keeping the law, a way of living which draws people near to God. And he says that way is love. In fact, he says love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is what happened when Jesus took care of our need. It's also the way we draw people into knowing Jesus too. And that's what Matthew was putting on display. He invited everyone he knew, come, meet this teacher, come. He wanted them to be brought closer to Jesus so that they could experience his love and his acceptance. And Jesus knew that he was the fulfillment of the law. This is the final thing that Jesus knew better about the law. He knew that he was going to fulfill it. Paul saw that love was the fulfillment. He saw that love was Jesus. Jesus was already there understanding that he was the better way to God the true lasting cleanser of sin, of guilt, and of shame. So Jesus knew the law better. He also knew a truer love. And he knew how to love people unconditionally. See, Jesus doesn't love as the world loves. And I know many of you know that. But as a refresher, human love is limited. It's conditional. I know we do our best to love people unconditionally. But every now and then, these little conditions creep in. Our love can be flawed. But the truer love of Jesus loves first, it loves best, and it loves without qualifiers. Because Jesus loves people as they are. He even loves those questioning his authority. Imagine that. He loved the people who came to ruin the party. He loved the people who brought objections. He loved the people who called... He he loved the same people who even would eventually call him a son of Satan but he loved them. He wanted to bring them closer to a better understanding of God. He loved them even when they didn't love him back. He loves equally those who call him the son of God and the son of Satan, and equally those who don't even know what to call him at all. He's not just great at loving people, he is love. And look at how he accepted in Matthew each and every person at the party without condemnation. He didn't stand at the door and go, "Uh, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. There was no qualifiers. He just came in because he was going to show them and introduce them to his father. So he accepted every person, brought them in, welcomed them in without the need to point out their sin. He invited them into a joy-filled celebration of life with God. He fellowshiped with them without taking on their issues. He wasn't marred by their sin. The Gospels tell us actually that Jesus was without sin. He understood that what someone else does doesn't make me guilty. And so he could just celebrate with them 
and be with them. And thirdly, so he knew, he knew the law better. He knew a truer love. And he knew what season it was. It was a season for joy. A season for celebration. He uses the metaphor of a wedding. Because at a wedding, you come together and you celebrate. And, and in those days, it was a long banquet. Days and days and days celebration. And he's saying, this is what time it is. It's not the time for fasting. It's not the time for looking at all the little rules and making sure we're doing every little thing. It's a time to just enjoy that we're with God. Yes, that does, of course, we need to recognize it doesn't mean that life isn't filled with the usual stuff, right? Yes, we're going to have hardships. Life with Jesus doesn't mean that we're protected from some challenges and some hard days and some dark days. But we know that we have Jesus with us through it. We have a source for joy, contentment, courage, perseverance. We can get through it in Jesus. So, of course, in, in Luke's account, in the Gospels, not everybody saw this. Not everybody saw that it was a time for celebration. They wanted to enforce the rules and spoil the party and get everyone there to do what they, the religious teachers, wanted and they had a good intentions. I want to be clear about that. They had good intentions, but they were wrong. They thought that as the leaders of the law, it was their place to make the rules for the party. They thought they would tell people how to celebrate and have fun. They wanted to set the guest list. They wanted to point out who could be in and who could be out and who would be accepted and who wouldn't be. But it isn't their party. It's God's party. He's the one building the kingdom and he's the one welcoming people in. He's the one who sets the rules. He's the one who decides. And what Jesus was trying to point out in his day is that anybody who acknowledges their need for God is welcome to come and find him. That's the important question. And look at Jesus' own statement about getting in. It's as if he's saying, do you need God? Genie God, genie God, genie God, then you're in. Welcome, come, join, come meet him, come get to know him because of Jesus. Jesus is the way in. To find that, find your need for God. We don't need more or less of Jesus, we just need to acknowledge Jesus. Yes, we need him. And the way is open. We just need to realize that on our own, we're kind of helpless. That's what the law was to point out. But sadly, that's what the religious leaders, the teachers of the law missed, as we said. So our response to this, depending on where we're coming from, might take a couple of different forms. For those of you who are wondering if the kingdom is for you, know this, that Jesus set it up. Jesus welcomes you in. Jesus wants you to find joy, satisfaction, perseverance, peace, and more in him. He wants to point you to his father. He wants you to know him. And he will help you get there. First, by accepting you as you are. Loving you perfectly, unconditionally, towards God, step by step. He will remove your guilt, your shame, your unworthiness, and replace it with dignity, as did as happened at Matthew's house that day. People walked away. We don't really have the end of this party. We don't know what, how, what each person walked away with, but we know that Matthew walked away with 
Jesus. He spent the rest of his life as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus. He sensed that acceptance, that love, and he was drawn into it. He's the only guest at that party that we really knew what happened. So, if you're wondering, could you be welcomed in, know that Jesus would love to welcome you in. But for those of us who know, I'm pretty confident we're already there, we're already in. Uh, well, I think we need to consider what, how we're presenting the kingdom. It, are, are, we, are we making this life with Jesus like a boring law school classroom where we sit down and we study? Or are we understanding that this is to point us to something bigger, more beautiful, towards a, a source of joy, of life, of hope? Do we have a picture of this kingdom life with Jesus that is so much more than what we see available in the world around us? And are we inviting people to come spend time with Jesus and let him show us the Father? Or are we saying, come, learn a bunch of rules, and then we'll see if you're worthy to be on the guest list? Have we twisted the law into some way that keeps people from God, or have we used it to point us towards our all, our universal need for him? Like we sang earlier, everyone needs forgiveness. We're not saying that we're perfect and we've got to figure it out. We understand we, we need it. That's what we see in the law. We also need to carefully consider our own righteousness. Jesus is calling people out in this account because some come to him with a sense of self-righteousness. And to put it a little more maybe helpful for our day, are we, are we trying to make ourselves righteous or are we allowing Christ to make us righteous? Jesus didn't come for us if we're just doing it ourselves. And we're going about a self-righteousness. He wants to offer us a rightness with God through the work he did and through a work of love. So however we arrive at this kingdom celebration today, whether we know we're in or we're questioning whether or not we are, may we find Jesus at the center of it all. And may we find the love and acceptance he offers us. And may we find that there is always room for more people in what happens to be an ever-expanding house that's housing a celebration. The house I was at yesterday could not have grown. And so there was only a few people who could be there. But the house of God grows more and more every single day. And there's always room for more. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you point us to a better way of understanding life with you and the relationship we can have. We thank you that you show us a love that is so much more than what we experience in those around us. It is unconditional and it is accepting that we come as we are. We come with need. And God, we thank you that you meet us in that need, leading us closer and closer to yourself. And God, we thank you that your kingdom, your house is ever expanding. There's room for more and you welcome people in to a celebration, a season where you are at the center. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name.
Amen.